It's midday on the Rural Radio Network, and that's the time of day when we just really go at the information for you here. And by the time you leave us in an hour and a half or two, you're going to know a lot more than you know now. I can guarantee it. Susan Littlefield is with us. We have Jason Jorgensen, Bob Brogan all standing by to bring you up to date on what is coming up on our midday program today. And back in the uh, back in the headlines today are going to be the birds and the bees. Is that right, Susan? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of, sort of, in a roundabout way. Um, there has been a big move over the last probably month and a half or so with the Pollinator Partnership here in the United States and producers in Puerto Rico, as we all know, they had such devastation uh, from the hurricanes. And the work has been done to reestablish. And a lot of U.S. farmers, a lot of beekeepers here in the States have sent the needed hives tools, etc., down to Puerto Rico to help to reestablish their pollinator habitat. And so it's a pretty cool thing, and we're going to talk more about that at 1245 with the president and CEO of the Pollinator Partnership. All right, and you also were giving me a little education on a kind of a, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a blender code or a refiner code called RINs. What's that all about? At the renewable identification numbers, we all know it has been in the news a lot lately. There is going to be another meeting today at the Capitol, um, actually with the president at the White House, and they are having non-lobbyists. Um, so these are folks that are actually in the in the roots of, of the ethanol side, in the roots of the refiners, um, with no lobbyists sitting by their sides to talk more about what we're going to do with RINs and the RFS. So we will have more about that coming up at 119. And then at 1219, uh, Bryce is going to speak with Joe Maxwell. He's with the Organization for Competitive Markets about a recent poll showing farmers are against the Monsanto bear merger. So more about that coming up at 1219. All right. We'll look forward to all that. Thank you very much, Susan. Over to Jason Jorgensen we go with sports. Lots of basketball to talk about. The NCAA tournament was announced yesterday. NIT was announced last night. Bad news on both fronts for the Nebraska men's basketball team. One, they did not get an invite to the NCAA tournament. Which, But there's also some who really probably were expecting it that didn't either. Th- that is at true. Uh, Nebraska then figured, well, if they don't make the NCAA tournament, they'll make the NIT, and of course they'll host a home game. Nah. That, didn't, that didn't materialize either, as they got a fist seed, which is a slap in the face to the Huskers and to the Big Ten. The Big Ten as a whole got just four teams into the NCAA tournament, just two teams in the NIT. Wow. Granted, it was down a little bit, but I don't know if it was down that much. But we will hear from head coach Tim Miles about that. Also, there's other basketball tournaments going on. NAIA tournaments continue on in Sioux City. And the Concordia women, they're in a Final Four. They'll take on Northwestern, our own Tyler Cavalli, who will have the call of that game tonight. will give us a preview in sports. And also, the Nebraska Wesleyan men, they scored 130 points over the weekend. What? They're headed to the Final Four in D3. <laughs> 130 points. Amazing. Bob Brogan, what are you having for us in business? Well, major U.S. stock indexes are uh, giving up that early gain that they had and are broadly lower in midday trading. Also, President Trump's Commerce Secretary is going to talk tariffs with uh, with the EU. And uh, Nebraska's unemployment rate uh, staying steady at uh, a very low level. In fact, it's one of the lowest in the entire country. It's always an exemplary number. All right, all this and more coming up for you today on Midday. 
Paul Perkins now steps in to get our ag weather out there to you. It's brought to you this morning by Coolman Repair. And a very quiet weather pattern right now, especially over the next couple of days. Um, quiet in the way of precipitation and light winds. How often do you get to say that in the month of I, March? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to report light winds. You, know? <laughs> you have to say wind somehow, you know, even when they're not a factor, uh, because you've just gotten so used to the fact that you've had to talk about it for the last month and a half. Especially in Nebraska and Kansas, usually there's plenty of wind, especially in the month of March, but not the case for today and tomorrow, so we will enjoy it. Well, we've still got a little uh, a little breeze out there. We certainly don't have a lot of precipitation except on the horizon, maybe Thursday. Yeah, it looks like Thursday night into the weekend, maybe some active chances, a little more active period of some uh, rain and snow chances. And also later next week in our long-term forecast for Nebraska, anyhow, our temperatures look to be seasonal with some light winds both today and tomorrow. Some high pressure continues to drop south out of the Dakotas. A nice warming trend and some dry weather anticipated during the middle of the week as a ridge of high pressure starts to edge east to towards the plains, especially by Thursday, we are looking at temperatures warming into the 60s and 70s. Temperatures peaking out on Thursday afternoon before they start to settle more back to seasonal levels over the weekend, but still it will be mild for this time of year for the weekend. That's going to be accompanied by several chances anyhow of some rain or snow for Thursday evening through Friday night. Now, it's not looking like a big event, but the forecast model differences are out there right now uh, as to how strong these systems will be when they move through. So just how much precipitation still up in the air. Right now the chance is somewhat low for seeing too much in the way of any rain or snow over the late part of the week into the early part of the weekend. Now the warmer and drier weather in this midweek going to lead to an increase in fire danger, especially over those drier areas of southern Nebraska into Kansas, especially south of the Platte River and definitely into Kansas. Our long-term forecast indicates spring won't be sprung just yet. This weekend through March 25th, the Nebraska temperatures are forecast to be seasonal to slightly cooler than normal. In Kansas, those temperatures should be seasonal to warmer than normal for this weekend through March 25th. Our forecast turns more active for Nebraska. Above normal precipitation is indicated this weekend through March 25th. That Kansas outlook, unfortunately, where they're Moisture is definitely more needed. The Kansas outlook expects mostly below normal precipitation, especially in the drier southwest where the higher chances of staying dry will be this weekend through the 25th. Our weather factors driving the markets include dry weather returning to Argentina and continued beneficial crop weather across Brazil. In the wake of another nor'easter, parts of the southeast U.S. could experience widespread freezes through Thursday morning after record-setting February warmth began the development. Once again, blizzard warnings posted for parts of Massachusetts. Unfavorably dry weather will persist across wheat areas of the Southern Plains where many locations have received less than a quarter inch of precipitation in the last five months. No significant rain chances are forecast for at least the next five to seven days in the west and central areas of the Southern Plains as that wheat increases in development coming out of dormancy. Mainly dry weather in Argentina will return for this mid-March. Showers over this past weekend were very scattered. The next rain chance does not show until the end of the week. Markets are already assuming a reduced harvest of soybeans. In southern Brazil, there continues to be no significant weather issues for maturing and harvesting of soybeans and the first crop corn. Soil moisture in key second corn areas are adequate right now and sometimes at a surplus. 
So middle week, we still have these kind of warmer conditions that are going to probably be playing with that drier condition that continues over, what, southern Nebraska, Kansas, most of Kansas. Yeah, that's where we, of course, uh, right uh, just south of the Platte River in Nebraska and the extreme northern part of Kansas, we have the abnormal dryness, but of course farther south in Kansas, especially the southwest, south of the Arkansas River, uh, extreme and exceptional drought, the highest stages of drought further south. and. Unfortunately, that long-term outlook not indicating much in the way of any moisture chances in that long term either in the next 14 days. Well, we could sure use a little hope down in that area. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the way it stacks up for this time around on our Ag Weather, brought to you by Coleman Repair. And a reminder, when you need weather anytime, krbn.com. U.S. Custom Agents stop a large threat to agriculture. More plans are presented to help the renewable fuel standards and RENs. Plus, what producers need to be aware of during tax time this year. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. In National Ag News, the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol says that it's intercepted one of the world's most destructive pests of stored grains, cereals, and seeds at two Washington, D.C. area airports already in 2018. The agency released late last week that agriculture specialists at Washington Dulles International Airport and Baltimore Washington International Thurgood Marshall Airport recently encountered the Capra beetle, the only insect it takes regulatory action against. Dulles specialists found four live adults, 12 live larvae, and several dead larvae in cast skins January 24th in rice from a Washington resident brought from Saudi Arabia. BWI specialists found two live adults and one dead immature larvae and several cast skins February 23rd in cowpeas in New York City from a resident bringing them from Nigeria. To protect U.S. grains, Customs did seize all the food and it was promptly incinerated to stop the beetle. The debate between oil refiners and ethanol distillers on REN numbers and the renewable fuel standards is continuing in Washington, D.C. this week. Now Jeff Brolin, the founder of POET, a South Dakota company that builds and manages ethanol plants, is presenting the White House with a proposal to multiply the number of renewable identification numbers, or RENs, and reduce compliance costs. The meeting was scheduled for today and slated to include Vice President Mike Pence. However, Politico is reporting that Pence would not be present because he'll be in New York today. Brolin's plan includes a temporary two-year program that could be designed to immediately multiply the number of D6 RINs, reducing compliance costs, while also encouraging the use of higher biofuel blends. The renewable fuel obligation for conventional biofuels would remain unchanged at 15 billion gallons a year. To help refiners, they would receive a REN multiplier for blending fuels above 10%, which would generate more RINs. The paper also makes other proposals, including a permanent waiver against the Reed vapor pressure rules for higher ethanol blends. The paper also proposes restoring incentives for flex fuel vehicles. The American Coalition for Ethanol, the National Farmers Union, and American Soybean Association, plus the National Biodiesel Board, have restated their opposition to the cap on RINs. The renewable fuel standard also has the courts backing against the EPA as their latest rulings show the EPA cannot waive the renewable fuel standard. It's that time of the year when producers take their past year's financials and start the process of filing income tax. With the recent tax reform passed under the Trump administration, many producers are asking how they'll be affected. Christine Tigrin, attorney at the Iowa State University Center for Agriculture, Law, and Taxation, shares about how the legislation is affecting and could affect farming and ranching operations. 
Well, the tax reform legislation has been very substantial. Most people should see their tax liability decrease, at least modestly, um, because of this new law. There was a lot of talk about the new limits on the state and local tax deduction uh, being limited to $10,000. It's important for them to realize that that limit doesn't apply to um, property taxes paid through their business or uh, for their business. So their farmland and their business assets and, and the, the, the property taxes they pay for those assets, there's no limit and they, they can continue to deduct those in full as they always have. While not much is certain in life, death and taxes seem to be a standard. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row and keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check sports with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, it turned out to be a very disappointing day for the Nebraska men's basketball team as they learned they were passed over for the NCAA tournament, and head coach Tim Miles doesn't feel like the Huskers received a whole lot of respect. I really do feel like we got slapped in the face, and, and uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, you can, uh, you know, we, we can still do something about it. I think that's the good news. And I hope we rally and respond and the guys feel the same way I do. Now, the Huskers did become just the first Big Ten team to ever win 13 games in conference action during the regular season and not make the NCAA tourney. Now, they will be making their first postseason appearance in four years when they travel to Mississippi State for a matchup at the NIT. That one starts at 8 Central. Virginia, Villanova, Kansas, and Xavier have all drawn the number one seeds in the NCAA tournament. Now, the Jayhawks are the top seed in the Midwest. They're followed up by Duke, Michigan State, and Auburn. And of note, Creighton has an interesting first-round matchup against Kansas State. The field for the women's NCAA and NIT tournaments will be revealed tonight. Well, the Nebraska Wesleyan Prairie Wolves men's basketball team rolled to a 130-97 victory over the number one ranked team in the nation, Whitman College, over the weekend in the NCAA Division III tournament quarterfinals. Nebraska Wesleyan will now travel to Salem, Virginia for the D3 Final Four this weekend. The Prairie Wolves meet up with Springfield College in the national semis on Friday. It marks the fifth NCAA Division III Final Four appearance for Nebraska Wesleyan, but their first trip to the national semis since 1997. And the NAIA National Tournaments continue in Sioux City. Tyler Cabali has this report on the Concordia women who are in the Final Four. The Bulldogs have demolished their first three opponents, blasting through Stillman College, Taylor University and Jamestown University in the quarterfinals on Saturday. Tonight, Concordia will be playing in their sixth Fab Four contest and the fourth of the last seven years they will appear in the semifinals. Their opponent tonight is a familiar one in GPAC foe in 11th-ranked Northwestern out of Orange City, Iowa. The Bulldogs handle the Red Raiders both times this season, but Northwestern has beat three top 25 teams here in the tournament so far. Tip from the Tyson Event Center tonight is set for 8 p.m., and the winner will get the Dakota Wesleyan University St. Xavier winner in the national championship game tomorrow night. Tonight's game can be heard on 104.9 Max Country and online at 1049maxcountry.com. Reporting from the NAIA Women's Basketball National Tournament in Sioux City, Iowa, I'm Tyler Cavalli. Hey, thanks, Tyler. That's Check Sports. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network.
Mostly clear skies in Nebraska tonight with lows in the mid-teens to lower 20s. I'm Dave Schroeder. Gothenburg Senator Matt Williams joins other senators, state officials, and the state's congressional delegation in remembering the late Governor Charlie Thone, who died Wednesday at the age of 94. His contribution to our state was incredible. He came through some very difficult times, and uh, he was a shining example of, of what a person can be when you just look at what's good for Nebraska and not do things just because of, an, of a political affiliation. So I'm very proud to have worked with Governor Thone on some items and uh, uh, pleased that uh, uh, he lived a long and glorious life. Flags are to be flown at half-staff until Tuesday evening. Authorities say a 16-year-old boy injured in a Sioux City, Iowa apartment fire has died at a Nebraska burn center. Sioux City police say Missiel Gonzalez Velasquez died at St. Elizabeth Regional Burn and Wound Center in Lincoln at around 3 a.m. this morning. He was flown there Sunday after initial treatment at a Sioux City hospital. Fire trucks were sent to the building around 3.40 Sunday morning, and firefighters say the flames filled an upstairs apartment where they found the boy. The fire cause is being investigated. Authorities say the blaze displaced 13 building occupants. A newspaper review of five years of disciplinary actions shows that Kansas social workers rarely lose their license after high-profile deaths or injuries of children under the care of the Kansas Department of Children and Families. Every disciplinary action posted on Kansas Behavioral Sciences Regulatory Board's website from 2013 through the first months of this year, the board has the power to both issue and revoke licenses for social workers. The review found that licenses were rarely revoked in DCF-related cases where the board has disciplined social workers. The department says it encourages workers to report unethical behavior, but acknowledges the agency itself doesn't make complaints to the board. DCF is facing public scrutiny over several child deaths, including a three-year-old Wichita boy whose body was found encased in concrete last year. Authorities in Salina are investigating an explosion and fire that killed a man. The explosion happened around 4 a.m. Sunday at a house. By the time firefighters arrived, the home was fully engulfed in flames, but they were able to keep it from spreading. The name of the man killed has not been released. Put our app on your phone and listen to podcasts and on-demand audio on your schedule. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Rebuilding continues in Puerto Rico, and it also includes rebuilding for pollinators. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Valdocini with the Pollinator Partnership talked to me about a recent trip to Puerto Rico and how the Pollinator Partnership helps to reestablish those lost hives and living quarters for pollinators. It really was a great opportunity, Susan. You know, I was in Puerto Rico. I was also in St. Croix, part of the U.S. Virgin Islands, and both islands had been hit pretty hard by Hurricanes Irma and Maria last fall. And what the Pollinator Partnership has done in the intervening five months is a number of things, including putting a GoFundMe campaign together to provide resources for emergency bee food and emergency bee hives, and we've been able to get both of those down to the islands there. And, uh, what we're really trying to do is provide the tools for local beekeepers throughout the Caribbean to 
uh, get back on their feet and create a sustainable local beekeeping economy both in the Virgin Islands and in Puerto Rico. And for you, what was what was the education process? How did you introduce the, the care that was needed for these pollinators? You know, we had been approached by uh, a couple of organizations shortly after the hurricanes to see what we could do to help. And so, you know, there was a bit of a learning curve involved with figuring out how to get supplies from the mainland U.S. to Puerto Rico. And that's still a continuing challenge. And, you know, only about 50% of Puerto Rico has seen electricity come back. So there's still a lot of hurricane damage left to uh, maneuver through. And, you know, the bureaucracy is pretty big down there as well. So what we've been able to do is work with folks at the University of Puerto Rico, work with some of the seed companies that do business in Puerto Rico, and work with a lot of individual beekeepers and private citizens, both here in the U.S. and on the islands, you know, to develop a, a an opportunity for people of all walks of life to help out. And I've really been happy to see the degree of interest in helping our fellow citizens there in Puerto Rico to recover from the hurricanes. And while they still have a ways to go, you know, we've been able to do a lot of good work in the last five months. What a great way for them to be able to supply the needs of these pollinators that will in turn return back here to the Midwest, for example, and be able to do their job. Yeah, you know, there are, there are hardworking honeybees in particular who really ride circuit around the continental U.S. beginning in the early part of the year. And now, of course, there are millions of hives literally in the California Central Valley pollinating almonds now. Uh, but they move all over the country. And what we've tried to do along with the help of other groups and, and scientists from the university is really create a sustainable beekeeping economy in Puerto Rico so that they at some point down the road won't need the help of our relief program and instead we'll have well-trained and well-supplied beekeepers who can provide the pollination services that are essential to the specialty crops grown in Puerto Rico and also to provide, uh, you know, honey and other value-added products, beeswax, candles, soap, a whole range of different things that uh, a well-equipped beekeeper can do both here in the continental U.S. as well as on the island. So. It's really a great chance for me to, you know, lend a helping hand and lend the resources of my organization, the Pollinator Partnership, to a really worthy cause. And for folks interested, you can go to our website at www.pollinator.org and learn more about not only pollinators generally and resources that are available to folks who might want to plant a backyard pollinator garden or get involved with some Pollinator Week activities that's coming up in June of this year but also to donate directly to our Puerto Rico campaign. There are lots of ways to help. Let's talk about that uh, Puerto Rico campaign. What specific things are they looking for? Is it more from the financial aspect, or is there some, some things that farmers could help donate? You know, at this point, I think we're pretty well covered on the donations. What we identified early on were two real needs. One was emergency protein for the bees, and so we were able to ship protein powder as well as protein patties that were used by beekeepers throughout the Caribbean. The second real need was new hive boxes because all of the hives were destroyed by the hurricanes and, you know, it took really some doing to find your bees, which were probably swarming in a school or a hospital or on a utility pole, and bring them back to your bee yards. And to do that, you need hives. To this point, we've shipped about a thousand new hive boxes down to Puerto Rico, and I was able to visit with some of the beekeepers that have received those new hive boxes and there's still more to do on that score and then i think the second phase 
And the remaining phases of this relief campaign are going to be to identify what other needs might exist down there, to work to develop perhaps a, a beekeeping apprenticeship program with some of our corporate partners to make sure that we're uh, supporting the scientists who work at the University of Puerto Rico. Their bee lab is still without electricity, so you know they're still waiting for relief on that front. Yeah, you know, the economic impact to Puerto Rico's ag economy has been dramatic. I think it was uh, calculated at close to $800 billion in the weeks following the hurricane, and, you know, that number has probably come down a little bit. But if you think about the devastation that Puerto Rico in particular suffered, it was pretty incredible. The entire floral landscape of the island was essentially stripped by the winds of Maria, and while that has come back, you know, that's obviously what the bees were in need of in the early days. And that's why we had to supply some emergency food. My conversation with Val Delcini as we talk about bees and pollinators in Puerto Rico. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rural Radio Network. Up next, we talk with Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities about the livestock futures trade. Joe. Yeah, not such a good day again once to uh, start out the week in uh, livestock futures. Cattle under some pretty good pressure. Had a couple of triple-digit losses uh, uh, after opening higher. Uh, we just started to see uh, some pretty good liquidation. We experienced a lot of liquidation last week, uh, and a lot of that uh, being uh, fund money uh, coming out of the market. And uh, I think we saw more of that today. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of good news around anyway. We finished lower for the week. Uh, the only thing was that uh, the uh, cattle that did trade late in the week uh, were a little bit better than the, at the, at the uh, middle part of the week, but it just wasn't enough. Uh, cutouts at noon were a little bit higher, but not a very brisk volume at all. So uh, we just saw some pretty good pressure uh, throughout the day, a lot of bear spreading, too. Feeders uh, <clears throat> not <clears throat> down as much, the, uh, uh, but there you are, discount to the uh, index, and that uh, kind of held them back just a bit, uh, And uh, but they still managed to finish uh, lower uh, after a lower close last week. Over in the hogs, uh, under some pressure, but a uh, nice little rally there at the end. Cutouts uh, to shave uh, some of the losses. The uh, cutouts a little bit higher uh, on the fair volume, uh, but uh, not enough to uh, get us back higher on the day. Cash a seemed a little bit on the weak side today. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal. You can reach him at Great Plains Commodities, 800-328-0134. This is the Rural Radio Network. Another meeting in Washington, D.C. on RINs. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. This White House meeting is scheduled for today to continue the discussions between oil refinery and biofuels interests over the price of renewable identification numbers or RINs, which is created under the Renewable Fuel Standard as a way to encourage refiners to blend more biofuels. Rick Sorsik is president of the Absolute Energy out of Iowa, met with President Trump on the 1st of March with other biofuels industry representatives. Well, I was honored to be uh, asked to join the president, vice president, and members of the cabinet, and, and by uh, Senator Grassley's and Ernst. It was a good meeting. The, you know, the support for E15 year-round was was a prevalent message, and uh, we're looking forward to trying to make that a reality. The ethanol industry represented itself well, 
and E15 year-round was uh, thought of as a good idea by nearly everyone around the table. And he explains how a 10-cent cap on the RIN price would impact demand. For example, a billion gallons of RIN would cost uh, $100 million. Uh, but that's a billion gallons of ethanol that potentially would not be made. And that's almost 350 million bushels of corn that wouldn't get ground. The Iowa State Center for Agriculture and Rural Development study, you know, looking at this, uh, estimated that it would drop corn prices about 25 cents a bushel. Well, that's 25 cents a bushel on every bushel. So that's, you know, about three and a half billion dollars of, of damage to the rural economy potentially. Uh, for $100 million of uh, these credit waivers from the oil industry. So, and it isn't just the the $3.5 billion. That $3.5 billion, you know, the last dollar a farmer earns and the first dollar he loses is on the profit end of it. So it, it's not just a, a lose situation for the rural economy. It might be a lose situation for the federal treasury as well, potentially. It would be nice if we could just uh, uh, get E15 year-round uh you know, more demand would create more RINs and naturally, you know, create increased supply of RINs. And over time, you'll bring those those prices down. So we'll see how it develops. Randy Doyle is CEO of All Corn Clean Fuel in Claremont, Minnesota, saying the RIN system is working well right now. While RINs are, are a very confusing subject, it was the, the mechanism put in place so that, uh, you know, we could have compliance with the renewable fuel standard. It was a way to drive the development uh, in infrastructure so that you could have higher level blends out there for people to be able to access and you could actually utilize renewable fuel and it's working <laughs> it's, it's actually working but what gets me is the talk about putting a cap on the rent price and the ridiculously low number that they're talking about that's basically giving refiners a way to say I don't have to use any renewable fuel, I can buy a credit for a dime because that's all the credit will cost. And they don't have to do any blending. And that's where the farm community ought to be really, really nervous because that means that a bushel of corn won't get ground when they're buying that credit, that the ethanol won't be produced. We're destroying demand for our crop. We're not willing to accept a cap on rent prices because Again, what's being proposed is not really a cap on price. It sets the price for buying a waiver. You can guarantee the RIN's discussion to continue. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network, talking with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. A nice comeback towards the end of the session today to trade a little bit higher in the uh, wheat contracts, the corn contracts. Soybeans maintain gains most of the session. What was your assessment of today's trade? I think in mid-morning we got a model change that a lot of the rains that were expected to hit this weekend in Argentina were pushed a little north and into Brazil. So um, the story there, and, and I'm skeptical to think any, any rains are going to really increase any production, but short term it's, uh, oh, you know, in my opinion, 
probably just due to, to see the market come back. I mean, there really isn't anything that's changed here in the short term. Producers, I think, who have sold are probably looking to move product, and um, it's kind of weird when, when you really sit down and look in the balance sheet and talk to farmers about what they're going to plant. It matters. Every acre is going to matter this year uh, when it comes to corn, and I think the goal of the market in the short term is to try to pull as much uh, production as it can from soybeans in the north, from, from cotton out west, and from from really, you're looking at corn and be, corn and cotton in the south, but I don't think corn's going to be a big player down there at this point. So I, I think you're looking at a 91, 92 million acre uh, production number top tops for corn, and some guys think it's going to be below 90. So even at at, at 90, uh, you're not going to raise enough supply to to outpace the current demand. So uh, for the first time in a while, we're going into a crop season with U.S. production, and I'm talking about the marginal acres really being of importance. Now, let's visit with you about March contracts going off the board this week. Is there any significance in that? Well, I like to see the spreads and how they're behaving. And in corn, we're, we're starting to see them come in. And, of course, we're inverted, basically, on the uh, on the bean side above new crop. But we do have a, a, a good wide carry between front-month beans and back-month beans uh, on the old crop. So that tells me that you're, you know, you got supply around. I think a lot of the U.S. Uh, price action we've seen are based off of weaker AI and then, the, the, of course, the weather in, in Brazil and Argentina, which have pushed meal prices higher. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of talk. I was back in Iowa this weekend and, and got a chance to kind of consume some of the media out that way. And just amazing how quickly the, the PR spin and the, you know, the, the I guess the, the media itself and has really pushed the story and the narrative that beans are, are going to be uh, losing demand here due to China. I think you have to be careful with that narrative. Um, you know, this is a global market now, and they can try to, to, to shift purchases around, but the fact of the matter is they're still buying, and that buying is coming out of the Brazilian matrix, which is only going to push their prices higher. So if you do it enough, we're the point where they buy all the Brazilian beans, the price will be more of the U.S., and they'll import them from here. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com.